Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. First up this week, Mary Roach, the legend. Mary Roach is the author of nine books, all of them nonfiction, most of them with one-syllable titles, Grunt, Stiff, Gulp, Bonk. Mary is a very particular kind of science writer. The stuff she obsesses over can seem weird or gross or marginal, but her passion and her humor leave the reader just as wrapped up in them as she is. In Grunt, it was the science of war and how soldiers on the battlefield are kept alive. In Stiff, it was about how we, living human beings, interact with cadavers, dead human beings. Let me put it this way. Of all the nonfiction writers who have ever appeared on our show, Mary is the one who has done the most research into whether people have had sex in space. Her newest book is called Fuzz. When Nature Breaks the Law. It's a book about how humans have tried and usually failed to manage nature. Bears that break into dumpsters, mooses stepping into traffic, gulls that eat papal flower arrangements, that kind of thing. It is always fun to talk to Mary, so let's not delay our conversation any further. My conversation with Mary Roach. Mary Roach, welcome back to Bullseye. Always nice to get to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, Jesse Thorne. Not least because I get to read these great books. But, you know, I'm going to start by asking you the question that I start every interview with, which is, can you explain the difference between real and counterfeit tiger penis? (laughs) Yes, I can. Um, I can explain why you need to know that. I can explain how to tell. I can describe various attributes of the tiger penis. I don't know where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> it really is an embarrassment of riches here. It is. Uh, <laughs> well, um, first of all, let's start with this. Tell me how you came to know about tiger peni. P- yeah, yeah. It's penises, first of all. Thank you. Okay. Don't copy edit me, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall how this happened, but I stumbled upon a paper that was also published as a guide for wildlife officers. And it uh, was entitled how to distinguish real versus counterfeit tiger penis. And that's the kind of thing that I get very excited about the (laughs) fact that there's a, and this was not a show. It was like a 15 page document about how to tell real versus counterfeit tiger penis. And the reason that these individuals need to know that is these are people in the forensics field, the wildlife forensics field. So uh, they're trying to keep people from uh, selling the body parts of endangered species. So say there's a package that comes into the United States and it's it's intercepted and there's this material. And um, you need to know, okay, is this an endangered species? Is this is somebody broken the law here? And do our officers need to get involved and track these people down? These people are smuggling uh, in this case, tiger penis, uh, which is used medicinally in in uh, traditional uh, Asian cultures, some of them, uh, as a 
a virility enhancing aid. The tiger penis is put into a, made into a soup, and that supposedly makes you more potent. So uh, it's important to be able to tell whether it's real tiger penis or something else. And it is almost always, you'll be happy to hear, it is almost always something else. And here's why. Number one, it's a lot cheaper to use horse or deer penis. It's cheaper, easier. And also the deer penis and the cow penis are much bigger and more, shall we say, inspirational. The tiger has a pretty small organ considering that this is an animal that it, it represents virility and potency and power. Uh, it's got a pretty little member. Uh, so things that are labeled <laughs> tiger penis or thought to be rarely turn out to be tiger penis. They're usually uh, deer penis. And I, don't, I could go on. <laughs> we don't really, <laughs> you don't really want to hear that, that much more about this, do you? Because just you know, stop me. I'll go on for the whole hour. Well, first of all, I want to just salute and recognize. This is something that I've probably done in every interview I've ever had with you on the show, which are now several. I just salute your commitment to like going to a very particular kind of library and then pressing control F and typing in fart or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nothing brings me more joy. <laughs> so, uh, Mary, why is this book about criminal animals and not animal criminals? That is to say, why are the miscreants in this book the animals and not the people? Well, I'll tell you why. The tiger penis paper got me thinking, well, let's look at animals as the victims of crime. Okay. So I went up to the uh, National National Wildlife Forensics Laboratory in Ashland, Oregon. And I had thought, you know, maybe there's some sort of book idea here. I don't know. I went to see Bonnie Yates, who's the woman who published the paper about the counterfeit tiger penis, and I spent a very diverting afternoon talking with people who prosecute these individuals who commit crimes against animals. And then I went to see the director of the lab, and I said, this is what I'd like to do, and I'd like to follow along on some cases, some smuggling cases, and some, you know, just some of the things you guys do. And he said, no. Because if it's an open case, you legally uh, can't be involved. You cannot report on the scene. And for me, that is a deal breaker. I, I want to tag along. And I mean, this is how I have fun in my life, other than hitting control F <laughs> on a you know, NASA thousand page mission transcript. I, I need to be on the scene and talking to people and seeing things and, and sniffing things. And I was told I couldn't do that. Uh, so on the way home, or maybe after I got home, at some point I thought, what if I kind of turned it inside out? And what if the animals were the victims? And and I think what you know, my memory of how this all came about is a little hazy. But somewhere in there, I came across a book from 1906, I think it is, uh, uh, called the Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. And this is a book about. Well, what the title suggests, um, animals that kill or steal uh, being tried in human courts of law and punished and sometimes 
hung. And, and I was like, that is really strange. Okay, this is 1600s, 1700s, not stuff that's going on today with a couple of exceptions. But it, that sort of gave me the idea. Well, well, what about what about? I mean, animals—they break all of our laws. You know, they commit manslaughter and home invasion and littering and trespassing and stealing and burglary and assault. And we can't just throw the book at them. Uh, what do we do? And that led me to uh, the science of human wildlife conflict, which I had never heard of. And I get a little—I get kind of excited when there's a branch of science that is completely new to me. You know, there's textbooks and conferences and people with titles like bear manager <laughs> and danger tree assessor. Uh, and so uh, that's how it happened. So did you think about whether you had been the victim of animal crime when you embarked upon this subject? Mm, no, because I know that I I haven't been the victim or I hadn't at that point been the victim of animal crime. No, I mean, well, I mean, we all have in the sense that, you know, squirrels start trespassing, they get in the attic, rodents steal things, mice in the pantry. I mean, I've had all that. I guess you could say, yeah, but, I, you know, I, I didn't set out on this project um, out of personal passion for <laughs> revenge <laughs> upon these creatures. <laughs> <laughs> so who do you ask then? Who do you ask what are the important intersections between people and animals? Mm, well, I go through a protracted period of just poking around and trying to see who who is involved in this and what they do and how they do it. You know, I, I don't go too deep into the ethics and philosophy of it because I'm kind of more I'm more interested in how do you solve these crimes? What do you do afterwards? How do you prevent them? What can you do? You can't lecture these animals. You can't sit them down and reason with them. So what do you do? How do you try to uh, fix these uh, situations? Uh, so that's how I proceeded. You know, just contacting and people with the strange titles, you know, the the elephant human wildlife conflict specialists and the just I, I just uh, send out as many feelers as I can and and try to find somebody who's going to be doing something that's interesting in the field who will let me tag along a lot of what ends up in the book because I pick very broad topics. I mean, there's thousands of different species in in you know hundreds of countries that are involved in conflicts with people, and I'm you know, zeroing in on uh, you know, 10 of them, say. So for me, it has a lot to do with who's going to be doing something in the field that's interesting, who will let me tag along. So um, that's kind of how my books go. More to come with writer Mary Roach. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the best-selling science writer, Mary Roach. She's the author of books including, but not limited to, Packing for Mars, Grunt, Bonk, and Stiff. Her newest is called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. In it, she looks at the way animals and law enforcement have interacted over human history. Spoiler alert, not a great fit there. Let's get back into our conversation. My brother-in-law 
was a law enforcement professional for a time. He was a park ranger at Yosemite. And most of his work involved keeping mountain climbers safe. But, you know, they do rotations. And at one point, he was awakened in the middle of the night in one of the villages in Yosemite by his chirping radio or whatever, and had to grab a rifle with a tranquilizer in it and run literally through people's cabins and campsites, like the classic in the front door, out the back door style uh, after a bear who was loose in the, you know, populated part of Yosemite. Um, And he was able to tranquilize the bear. And I don't think the bear ended up being destroyed, but bears are, I think (laughs) one of the most iconic American fraught intersections between people and animals. Yeah. So what bears did you look at for the book? I was going to say that sounds like a nightly occurrence in in Yosemite and many other areas. Um, I was in Aspen, Colorado. Aspen is a it's a ski resort town, so it's up in the hills and it's in prime bear country. People are building large homes amidst oak and choke cherry and oh, what's the other? There's a couple of others. It's just, it's just the the plants that bears live on. And there's these big houses all over there now. And um, on a regular basis, uh, bears come around and it usually starts out with a bird feeder or a bag of dog food or garbage container that isn't bear resistant. And so then the bears figure out, hey, this is easy pickings. And they start coming around more and they start to lose their fear of people and they get emboldened and then they start coming through the door or the window. And that's when in this case, Colorado Parks and Wildlife gets involved. I mean, I'm from New Hampshire. There are black bears. As a kid, I never, I don't recall ever seeing a bear. I was in Aspen in two days and I went with a, a bear researcher, Stuart Breck. And I figured, ah, you know, what, what are the odds? You know, we're going to go, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to insist that we set the alarm for 3.30 in the morning and we're going to go in the back alleys of downtown Aspen, where all the restaurants are and the dumpsters and and uh, a lot of good eating for bears. And but what are the odds uh, on any given night you're going to see a bear? Well, we instantly saw. It. We pulled up in Stewart's truck, and down the alley were a couple big garbage bags torn open, uh, food scraps everywhere, and the bears weren't there. And I was like, "Wow, ah, we just missed them." And he's like, mm, "Let's just pull over here. They'll be back." And within five minutes, not one but two <laughs> black bears. They're ambling down the alley and get back to their food scraps. And this is some really good eating for them. This is like sustainably grown lamb and, and you know, Alaskan salmon. And uh, it was it was good stuff. So uh, we looked. We looked in the bag. And anyway, <laughs> so it's uh, – uh, I, I was surprised at, at how regularly on a daily basis this occurs. I mean, there's, there's so many uh, – so often tourists, usually tourists, uh, in downtown Aspen, uh, if there's a if they see a bear, they will go up to it with a selfie stick to take pictures. And it, it happens enough that there's now a law. You can be fined for taking your photograph next to a bear. 
the thing about bears and their intersections with humans are that even though bears are much more powerful than an unarmed human and just doing their thing when they interact with humans, just looking around for berries or equivalent, mm-hmm. a bear that becomes habituated to human food both becomes much less effective as a wild bear, much less, you know, comfortable doing regular wild bear stuff and much more dangerous to people and property. What did you learn about what happens in those situations where goofy old bears are pawing through garbage that belong to, you know, squajillionaires in Aspen? Yeah, the the situation becomes dangerous when <clears throat> well the, you know they they start to lose their fear they're rewarded by these large amounts of tasty food so they're they're more motivated and they're less fearful. Uh so they get closer and closer and uh, when the, at the point where a bear starts breaking into a window or a door now there's a situation where say the the person is home and maybe the person has a dog and the dog is trying to protect the home. The dog gets involved. Now the bear feels threatened. The person may try to come between the dog and and the bear. And now the bear, it's called attack redirection. There's a term. Now the bear may just go after the person. And that's that's when people get killed. And there's a lot that could happen in someone's home that the bear perceives as a threat. Uh, and so at that point, if the person reports the bear, that's when Parks and Wildlife sets a trap and that bear is destroyed. So um, it's not good for the bears. you know. And, and, and people will say, well, why don't you just trap it and relocate it? And that is something that's tried. If, if a bear is just seen in a neighborhood in Aspen wandering around, hasn't yet broken into a home, hasn't yet seemed to realize this is an ongoing supply of really great food, that bear, they'll set a trap, a culvert trap, and they'll take the bear back to the closest woods. And and they will try that. But bears tend to, you know, the statistics and studies when you look at relocating bears, they're very good at finding their way back. And the other thing that can happen is that if you relocate a bear, close and it, and it can go it goes in the the other direction and ends up in another community and it starts doing the same things it was doing uh you know if it's a bear that had been breaking into homes and is habituated to human food and now it's doing it there in this other community that's a liability situation for the organization that moved it in the first place uh so it's it's not appreciated by the community who now has this food habituated bear uh, in its midst. And it's also, you know, uh, potentially a lawsuit. And there have been lawsuits where uh, bears have, you know, uh, parks and wildlife or fish and wildlife, every state has its own different name, um, uh, have been sued uh, successfully. So it's, uh, there's not an easy solution. The best solution, obviously, is that don't, uh, don't leave your garbage unsecured and don't have bird feeders and don't leave. You know, but, but the problem again with Aspen, Aspen's a community where a lot of these homes are vacation rentals. People are coming in from out of town. They don't know from bears. They don't 
know the consequences of, you know, leaving trash unsecured. And some of them are feeding the bears so they can take a video and put it on YouTube. Uh, So that compounds the problem. I mean, you started this process with a borderline ancient book about animals being put on trial for crimes. When animals are put on trial for crimes, it suggests that they you know, as goofy as it is, it suggests that they have rights. You know, they have the right to trial if they're accused of a crime, if you're going to put animals on trial, right? Yeah, they were assigned legal representation. So as silly as it may be to, you know, accuse a snake of theft, it is in a way like a generous act in the eyes of the law to include snakes in the definition of theft. So What did you learn about what rights animals have, especially in the United States, and, you know, how those rights and the ways that we think about those rights have changed or are changing? Well, animals, if they're pets or livestock, they're considered property. They're owned by a human and they're considered property. So, Legally, what happens depends on, you know, if somebody comes in and mutilates or kills or destroys your property, you, the homeowner or the rancher, have rights because it's your property. Wild animals are under the jurisdiction of the state or the their, their agencies, like there's, there's federal and local agencies, and they decide what's to be done. And the, the the attitude has changed somewhat from the uh, 1800s and early 1900s when wild animals were mostly thought of as a threat either to the rancher, the hunter, or the uh, farmer. So they were considered varmints and uh, something to be killed in large numbers, you know, or they were a commodity, something to be trapped and and sold. So. They don't have rights, like human rights. There's, There was just a long story in The New Yorker, I think last week, about efforts to confer personhood upon, I guess it was primates, elephant. There's an elephant, I think, that, that was the basis of the story. I haven't read the story. Uh, but there, there, that is a, an approach that some in the animal rights community are trying to push forward and, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that they're uh, the animals uh, will be voting you know or you know, it's not it's not like they're going to be considered human beings but it's a way of conferring some sort of protections but on the whole animals don't have rights they no longer have attorneys uh, representing them uh, so it's uh, kind of a bum deal for the animals The people who are, let's say, enforcing the law against animals, whether it's park rangers or, you know, officials of a, you know, state and wildlife department or whatever, I imagine that they got into that line of work because they like animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it must be difficult for somebody who went off to be a forest ranger because they love spending time in the forest 
to think about whether they have to kill an animal or, you know, cull a population or, you know, take other steps that are hurting creatures that they love. Yeah, it's a, as far as I could tell, a really difficult job for that. I mean, for anybody, but in particular, somebody often people who take these jobs are, are wildlife biologists. They're people who've studied animals, and like you said, they're very fond of animals and being in the wilderness and and seeing wild animals. And um, I mean, while I'm, I'm sure there are some that were more attracted to the law enforcement side of it, I didn't meet any of them. Um, the people that I met and spent time with were were animal people. And those are, like you said, uh, when it's time to destroy an animal because it's come too close and spent too much time in close proximity to humans and is considered a public health threat, they're the ones that have to kill the animal. And I talked to this this ranger in Aspen, in the, the county, Pitkin County it is, who who has to do that? And I said something like, "Yeah, that must be in my kind of I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that must be really hard. I don't know. I didn't really know how to to say it or bring it up. And I said something clumsy like that. And he said, "Yeah, it is." And he gave me the example of that week he'd had a a female bear, a sow, and and a cub that were breaking into homes regularly and had been trapped and he he had to to kill them and he said I was thinking on I don't want the mother bear to see the baby bear destroyed likewise I wouldn't want the the baby bear the cub to see its mother destroyed so how do I do this so I anesthetized tranquilized one killed the other and then killed the tranquilized I mean like to have to think that through when you know you're somebody who doesn't want to kill a bear in the first place but to have to to do a family unit, and how do you do that? Ah, it was this is brutal. Okay, so how did how did beans get to be in this book, Mary? That's not an animal. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Okay. This book. Oh, this this story kills me. I this book used to be titled. My title originally was "Animal Vegetable Criminal." That's fun. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's a good title. I was always very excited to have nine syllables instead of one, because yeah. I don't I don't have to have the single syllable one word title. I just end up there. So we were pretty close to going into the production phase of things when Mark Bittman. I say that with no bitterness at all. <laughs> It's a hard a hard name to say Mark without Bittman. bitterness. Not because anything about him personally engenders bitterness. It just sounds bitter when you say it. Yeah, because it it contains the first syllable of bitter. Yeah, bitter. Mark Bittman. So Mark Bittman released a book called and it was a history of food called Animal Vegetable Junk. And I got an email from my editor telling me about this and saying, you know, we really, we need to change the title of your book because Mark Bittman is a major best-selling author. Everyone will think you stole his idea. People will get confused on Amazon. Um, that was their decision to, uh, to change the title. Now, the whole time I was writing the book, I'm getting to your question about the beans. The whole time I'm writing the book, 
I'm thinking the title is Animal, Vegetable, Criminal, and I'm thinking there needs to be some vegetable matter in the book. And I did have, I had a chapter on danger trees, which I felt uh, fulfilled that requirement. But my editor said, Mary, I don't think she played Animal, Vegetable, Mineral as a child. She never quite got on board with that title. And she said, Mary, why? There's no vegetables in this book. You need more vegetables in this book or more vegetable matter. So at the last minute, uh, and this was during COVID, so there wasn't wasn't anywhere I could go. Uh, So um, I stumbled onto beans uh, because beans, (laughs) beans, okay. Beans known universally as the musical fruit. (laughs) There's castor beans from which ricin is derived. And there are these beans these peas, rosary peas, uh, and, and abrin or abrin, I never did figure out how you say it, incredibly deadly. So I've, I have this chapter, the killer beans chapter, which was kind of, <laughs> it was fun to report on the killer beans. Uh, but Who was your favorite bean spurt with whom you spoke? <laughs> I, yeah, I, my favorite was a guy, we ended up taking him out. This was before, oh, it's before I decided on beans I was looking at killer vines, like, and I wrote to this guy as an expert in the strangler vine, and I said, could a strangler vine, given enough time, strangle a human? And he wrote back with this, he took the question seriously, and he described the strangler, I think it's the strangler fig, actually, and how it starts out as an epiphyte in the trees, and then it sends down these roots, and it begins to kind of wind its way around things. And if you stood still long enough, um, yes, in fact, well, it wasn't that you would be, because it doesn't strangle, because it's not getting tighter and tighter, but you would be encased. You would be encased in it. But, you know, it's not likely to, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that, Mary. I was growing more and more concerned about encasement. (laughs) But I love this guy. Also, his name was Dr. Putz. (laughs) (laughs) And I love anybody named Dr. Putz. Uh, Dr. Putz was incredibly tolerant and patient and would answer, you know, a question, a ridiculous question, like could a strangler vine, given time and the right situation, circumstances, kill a human being? But he, uh, he's not in the book. We'll finish up with Mary Roach after a quick break. When we return, we'll talk with her about how the book impacted how she interacts with the animals that populate her day-to-day life. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey! Did grad school ruin your reading habits? Oh my God, all those books you had to read for grad school. Did becoming a parent destroy your ability to focus on a book? Did the pandemic tank the number of novels you can get through in a year? Ugh, that happened to everyone, and we're Reading Glasses, and we're here to help. We'll get you out of a book slump, dismantle all that weird reader guilt. Which we know you have a lot of, but most importantly, we'll help you fall back in love with reading. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest is writer Mary Roach. She's the author of the new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Let's get back into our conversation. So I've got this cabin in the Southern Sierras, and there's giant sequoias around. And giant sequoias live for thousands of 
literal thousands of years, right? And one of the ways that they do that is by resisting fire. And one of the ways that they resist fire is that when there is fire uh, and fire damage, they shed their branches. And so that means there have been several huge scale fire events, thanks to forest management practices and climate change working in concert and human behavior working in concert. When there are big fires, even when the sequoias survive, they are naturally dropping their branches. And they don't just do it like when the fire is licking at their heels, they do it thereafter as well, right? And so the end result of this is that when there is a fire, the giant sequoias become extraordinarily dangerous. Yes, there's a term for that. So was it going to be Widowmaker? <laughs> That's what they call it up in the mountains. The term, no, Widowmaker is more colorful. No, they're, they become, this is a classification, a danger tree. Oh, yes, danger tree. <laughs> danger tree. one of my favorite british saturday morning cartoons so (laughs) what trees are dangerous to people and why are they dangerous to people very very old trees are dangerous to people trees that um generally speaking trees that are nearing the very end of their lifespan they may have been dead for some time they are dying or they are dead uh, sometimes they're diseased, and there's a, a reasonable risk that they are going to fall over in the next storm, or even without the next storm, and land on somebody and kill that person. And and the, what's difficult for tree people, um, I spent some time in McMillan Grove, which is up in British Columbia, and it's this beautiful grove of ancient conifers, Douglas firs and others, and they are hundreds of years old. And some years back, uh, one of them did fall onto the roadway and killed a family who had pulled over. Uh, It was a storm, snow, wind, and they pulled over in order to be safer, and the tree fell on their car. And since then, uh, the park has employed a danger tree assessor who goes around and, as the name implies, assesses these very old trees to be sure, okay, this one has some fungal issues. We're having some rot, but it's still pretty safe. And um, so every year he goes around and, and he watches, and he's been doing this for decades, watches these trees because they don't, you know, they don't want to cut them down because this is why people come to McMillan Grove to see these big trees. So they don't, on a whim, go and cut them down. So uh, these giant conifers, they die very slowly, a couple hundred years. I mean, the, the worst part about living 900 years is the 200 years spent slowly dying. <laughs> and they, but you can, so you can tell me s- about it. <laughs> uh, you have plenty of time to figure out which tree is a danger tree. And they don't, uh, even when a tree is starting to be a danger tree, what they'll do is send someone up the tree, an expert in explosives, uh, and they will blow off the top. That makes the tree safer. Because now it weighs less, it's more stable. It doesn't have the branches getting caught in the wind, blowing around. So it's uh, and with these very very tall trees, you walk through that forest and you, as the visitor, have no idea that the top 
third of it has been blown off. What I'm excited about is the idea of getting a gang together to take care of these trees, <laughs> like a, a lock picker, uh, an explosives expert, <laughs> a getaway driver. <laughs> do you now look at trees and assess them for danger yourself? Or you? I do all the yeah. time. Uh, yeah, yeah, there was what there's. Uh, we have a neighborhood email chain for our street for our block, and someone wrote and said we have a redwood in the backyard and it seems perfectly healthy to me. But there's an owl up there, and my landlord's going to take it down. Help! What do we do? And I thought, Mary, don't get involved. Don't be that person. <laughs> And I, I restrained myself for the better part of a day. And then, <laughs> and then I wrote it and I tried to say it really nicely. I said, yeah, while it does look like that tree is well into its retirement years, like it's, it's a very, very elderly tree. If I were the landlord, I would take that sucker out. But I did say, you know, one thing that these danger tree assessors, and I said, I, I had a chapter on danger trees in my last book. <laughs> so I am that kind of know-it-all neighbor. And I said, one thing that they do try to do is wait till any bird life, any small birds have fledged. So maybe you could persuade him to wait a few months for the sake of the owlets. And by God, they did. They agreed to come back in the fall. Oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? I love it for the owlets. For the owlets. So I'm always, I go hiking and I'm always... Because I like to say danger tree. You see right there, that right there, that day you got a danger tree here. How did doing all this reporting on these really intense conflicts between people and animals, ones that in a lot of ways neither party was asking for, change the way that you feel about interacting with animals in your life? Uh, I ended up being a kind of annoyingly outspoken advocate of the animals that most people think nothing of treating very poorly. Uh, uh, That is the ones we call pests, the mice, the rats, the birds in the rafters, the raccoons. I think it's partly because we call them pests. And because there are people we can call and kind of outsource the unpleasant parts, uh, we're just kind of quick to do that. And and if you kill a mountain lion or a bear, uh, there's going to be media, there's going to be angry people, rightly so. I mean, there's sometimes those are uh, those things are undertaken too quickly, depending on what state you live in. And I get that, but uh, why are we still? Using glue traps. I mean, they're far more humane. If you have a rodent situation, first of all, why do you have a rat problem? You're either providing shelter or food. So stop it. Clean up your act, first of all. And second of all, uh, if you have to you know, get ahead of the problem and, and do some kind of exterminating, there are humane ways to do that. Don't get a glue trap. Anyway, I felt I also because some of the, the history of how we've treated agricultural pests, which tend to be birds and rodents, with impunity, just, you know, millions, literally millions off and nobody blinking an eye. So like anyone else, I'd never gave much thought to those creatures. I was, of course, aware of the situation, of the very touchy situation with bears in this country, with wolves, with coyotes, you know, the large mammals that people feel passionate about 
for or against. Um, but the little guys, you know, we tend to just kind of go, yeah, all right, just call the exterminator. Just get rid of them. I felt bad for them. And I didn't used to be that person. Well, Mary Roach, it's always fun to have you on the show. Thanks for the great book. Thanks for stopping by from your house in Oakland. You're the best anytime. Oh, you are, Jesse Thorne. You're the best. Thank you so much. I love being on Bullseye. Mary Roach, a true legend. Her new book is called Fuzz When Nature Breaks the Law. Like all of her books, it is just an absolute delight. Just front to back, delightful, full of interesting things to learn, full of great laughs. Uh, She's really one of the best. Fuzz, in bookstores now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, we just got a new cactus. My son had one cactus whose name was George Washington. The new cactus is named Abraham Lincoln. He's into naming the cactuses. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffat, and Richard Roby. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Special thanks this week to Mary Roach for recording herself and for agreeing to reschedule our interview three times. A true legend, the great Mary Roach. Thank you, Mary. We have no choice but to stand this flexible legend. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in those places. Uh, Follow us. We share our interviews there. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.